A Theory of Human Motivation, Sections 3 and 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Rees. A Theory of Human Motivation by A. H. Maslow. 3. Further Characteristics of the Basic Needs. The Degree of Fixity of the Hierarchy of Basic Needs. We have spoken so far as if this hierarchy were a fixed order, but actually it is not nearly as rigid as we may have implied. It is true that most of the people with whom we have worked have seemed to have these basic needs in about the order that has been indicated. However, there have been a number of exceptions. 1. There are some people in whom, for instance, self-esteem seems to be more important than love. This most common reversal in the hierarchy is usually due to the development of the notion that the person who is most likely to be loved is a strong or powerful person, one who inspires respect or fear, and who is self-confident or aggressive. Therefore, such people who lack love and seek it may try hard to put on a front of aggressive, confident behavior, but essentially they seek high self-esteem and its behavior expressions more as a means to an end than for its own sake. They seek self-assertion for the sake of love, rather than for self-esteem itself. 2. There are other, apparently innately creative people, in whom the drive to creativeness seems to be more important than any other counter-determinant. Their creativeness might appear not as self-actualization realized by basic satisfaction, but in spite of lack of basic satisfaction. 3. In certain people, the level of aspiration may be permanently deadened or lowered, that is to say, the less prepotent goals may simply be lost, and may disappear forever, so that the person who has experienced life at a very low level, i.e., chronic unemployment, may continue to be satisfied for the rest of his life, if only he can get enough food. 4. The so-called psychopathic personality is another example of permanent loss of the love needs. These are people who, according to the best data available, have been starved for love in the earliest months of their lives, and have simply lost forever the desire and the ability to give and to receive affection, as animals lose sucking or pecking reflexes that are not exercised soon enough after birth. 5. Another cause of reversal of the hierarchy is that when a need has been satisfied for a long time, this need may be under-evaluated. People who have never experienced chronic hunger are apt to underestimate its effects, and to look upon food as a rather unimportant thing. If they are dominated by a higher need, this higher need will seem to be the most important one of all. It then becomes possible, and indeed does actually happen, that they may, for the sake of this higher need, put themselves into the position of being deprived in a more basic need. We may expect that after a long time deprivation of the more basic need, there will be a tendency to re-evaluate both needs, so that the more prepotent need will actually become consciously prepotent for the individual who may have given it up very lightly. Thus. A man who has given up his job rather than lose his self-respect, and who then starves for six months or so, may be willing to take his job back, even at the price of losing his uh, self-respect. 6. Another partial explanation of apparent reversals is seen in the fact that we have been talking about the hierarchy of prepotency in terms of consciously felt wants or desires, rather than of behavior. Looking at behavior itself may give us the wrong impression. What we have claimed is that the person will want the more basic of two needs when deprived in both. There is no necessary implication here that he will act upon his desires. Let us say again that there are many determinants of behavior other than the needs and desires.
7. Perhaps more important than all these exceptions are the ones that involve ideals, high social standards, high values, and the like. With such values, people become martyrs. They give up everything for the sake of a particular ideal or value. These people may be understood at least in part by reference to one basic concept, or hypothesis, which may be called increased frustration tolerance through early gratification. People who have been satisfied in their basic needs throughout their lives, particularly in their earlier years, seem to develop exceptional power to withstand present or future thwarting of these needs simply because they have strong, healthy character structure as a result of basic satisfaction. They are the strong people who can easily weather disagreement or opposition, who can swim against the stream of public opinion, and who can stand up for the truth at great personal cost. It is just the ones who have loved and been well loved, and who have had many deep friendships, who can hold out against hatred, rejection, or persecution. I say all this in spite of the fact that there is a certain amount of sheer habituation, which is also involved in any full discussion of frustration tolerance. For instance, it is likely that those persons who have been accustomed to relative starvation for a long time are partially enabled thereby to withstand food deprivation. What sort of balance must be made between these two tendencies, of habituation on the one hand, and of past satisfaction breeding present frustration tolerance on the other hand, remains to be worked out by further research. Meanwhile, we may assume that they are both operative, side by side, since they do not contradict each other. In respect to this phenomenon of increased frustration tolerance, it seems probable that the most important gratifications come in the first two years of life. That is to say, people who have been made secure and strong in the earliest years tend to remain secure and strong thereafter in the face of whatever threatens. Degree of Relative Satisfaction So far, our theoretical discussion may have given the impression that these five sets of needs are somehow in a stepwise, all-or-none relationships to each other. We have spoken in such terms as the following. If one need is satisfied, then another emerges. This statement might give the false impression that a need must be satisfied 100% before the next need emerges. In actual fact, most members of our society who are normal are partially satisfied in all their basic needs, and partially unsatisfied in all their basic needs at the same time. A more realistic description of the hierarchy would be in terms of descending percentages of satisfaction as we go up the hierarchy of prepotency. For instance, if I may assign arbitrary figures for the sake of illustration, it is as if the average citizen is satisfied perhaps 85% in his physiological needs, 70% in his safety needs, 50% in his love needs, 40% in his self-esteem needs, and 10% in his self-actualization needs. As for the concept of emergence of a new need after satisfaction of the prepotent need, this emergence is not a sudden, saltatory phenomenon, but rather a gradual emergence by slow degrees from nothingness. For instance, if prepotent need A is satisfied only 10%, then need B may not be visible at all. However, as this need A becomes satisfied 25%, need B may emerge 5%, and as need A becomes satisfied 75%, need B may emerge go percent, and so on. Unconscious Character of Needs These needs are neither necessarily conscious nor unconscious. On the whole, however, in the average person, they are more often unconscious rather than conscious. It is not necessary at this point to overhaul the tremendous mass of evidence which indicates the crucial importance of unconscious motivation. It would by now be expected, on a priori grounds alone, that unconscious motivations would on the whole be rather more important than the conscious motivations. What we have called the basic needs are very often largely unconscious, 
although they may, with suitable techniques and with sophisticated people, become conscious. Cultural Specificity and Generality of Needs This classification of basic needs makes some attempt to take account of the relative unity behind the superficial differences in specific desires from one culture to another. Certainly, in any particular culture, an individual's conscious motivational content will usually be extremely different from the conscious motivational content of an individual in another society. However, it is the common experience of anthropologists that people, even in different societies, are much more alike than we would think from our first contact with them, and that as we know them better, we seem to find more and more of this commonness. We then recognize the most startling differences to be superficial rather than basic, e.g., differences in style of hairdress, clothes, taste in food, etc. Our classification of basic needs is in part an attempt to account for this unity behind the apparent diversity from culture to culture. No claim is made that it is ultimate or universal for all cultures. The claim is made only that it is relatively more ultimate, more universal, more basic, than the superficial conscious desires from culture to culture, and makes a somewhat closer approach to common human characteristics. Basic needs are more common human than superficial desires or behaviors. Multiple Motivations of Behavior These needs must be understood not to be exclusive or single determiners of certain kinds of behavior. An example may be found in any behavior that seems to be physiologically motivated, such as eating, or sexual play, or the like. The clinical psychologists have long since found that any behavior may be a channel through which flow various determinants. Or, to say it in another way, most behavior is multi-motivated. Within the sphere of motivational determinants, any behavior tends to be determined by several or all of the basic needs simultaneously, rather than by only one of them. The latter would be more an exception than the former. Eating may be partially for the sake of filling the stomach, and partially for the sake of comfort and amelioration of other needs. One may make love not only for pure sexual release, but also to convince oneself of one's masculinity, or to make a conquest, to feel powerful, or to win more basic affection. As an illustration, I may point out that it would be possible, theoretically, if not practically, to analyze a single act of an individual and see in it the expression of his physiological needs, his safety needs, his love needs, his esteem needs, and self-actualization. This contrasts sharply with the more naive brand of trait psychology in which one trait or one motive accounts for a certain kind of act, i.e., an aggressive act is traced solely to a trait of aggressiveness. Multiple Determinants of Behavior Not all behavior is determined by the basic needs. We might even say that not all behavior is motivated. There are many determinants of behavior other than motives. Footnote I am aware that many psychologists and psychoanalysts use the term motivated and determined synonymously, e.g., Freud. But I consider this an obfuscating usage. Sharp distinctions are necessary for clarity of thought and precision in experimentation. End of footnote. For instance, one other important class of determinants is the so-called field determinants. Theoretically, at least, behavior may be determined completely by the field or even by specific isolated external stimuli, as in association of ideas or certain conditioned reflexes. If in response to the stimulus word table, I immediately perceive a memory image of a table, this response certainly has nothing to do with my basic needs. Secondly, we may call attention again to the concept of degree of closeness to the basic needs, or degree of motivation. Some behavior is highly motivated, 
other behavior is only weakly motivated. Some is not motivated at all, but all behavior is determined. Another important point, footnote, to be discussed fully in a subsequent publication, end of footnote, is that there is a basic difference between expressive behavior and coping behavior, functional striving, purposive goal-seeking. An expressive behavior does not try to do anything. It is simply a reflection of the personality. A stupid man behaves stupidly, not because he wants to, or tries to, or is motivated to, but simply because he is what he is. The same is true when I speak in a bass voice rather than tenor or soprano. The random movements of a healthy child, the smile on the face of a happy man even when he is alone, the springiness of a healthy man's walk, and the erectness of his carriage are other examples of expressive, non-functional behavior. Also, the style in which a man carries out almost all his behavior, motivated as well as unmotivated, is often expressive. We may ask, then, is all behavior expressive or reflective of the character structure? The answer is no. Rote, habitual, automatized, or conventional behavior may or may not be expressive. The same is true for most stimulus-bound behaviors. It is finally necessary to stress that the expressiveness of behavior and goal-directedness of behavior are not mutually exclusive categories. Average behavior is usually both. Goals as Centering Principle in Motivation Theory It will be observed that the basic principle in our classification has been neither the instigation nor the motivated behavior, but rather the functions, effects, purposes, or goals of the behavior. It has been proven sufficiently by various people that this is the most suitable point for centering in any motivation theory. Footnote. The interested reader is referred to the very excellent discussion of this point in Murray's Explorations in Personality. End of footnote. Animal and Human Centering This theory starts with a human being rather than any lower and presumably simpler animal. Too many of the findings that have been made in animals have been proven to be true for animals, but not for the human being. There is no reason whatsoever why we should start with animals in order to study human motivation. The logic, or rather illogic, behind this general fallacy of pseudo-simplicity has been exposed often enough by philosophers and logicians, as well as by scientists in each of the various fields. It is no more necessary to study animals before one can study man than it is to study mathematics before one can study geology or psychology or biology. We may also reject the old, naive behaviorism which assumed that it was somehow necessary, or at least more scientific, to judge human beings by animal standards. One consequence of this belief was that the whole notion of purpose and goal was excluded from motivational psychology, simply because one could not ask a white rat about his purposes. Tolman has long since proven in animal studies themselves that this exclusion was not necessary. Motivation and the Theory of Psychopathogenesis the conscious motivational content of everyday life has, according to the foregoing, been conceived to be relatively important or unimportant, accordingly as it is more or less closely related to the basic goals. A desire for an ice-cream cone might actually be an indirect expression of a desire for love. If it is, then this desire for the ice-cream cone becomes extremely important motivation. If, however, the ice-cream is simply something to cool the mouth with, or a casual appetitive reaction, then the desire is relatively unimportant. Everyday conscious desires are to be regarded as symptoms, as surface indicators of more basic needs. If we were to take these superficial desires at their face value, we would find ourselves in a state of complete confusion, which could never be resolved, 
since we would be dealing seriously with symptoms rather than with what lay behind the symptoms. Thwarting of unimportant desires produces no psychopathological results. Thwarting of a basically important need does produce such results. Any theory of psychopathogenesis must then be based on a sound theory of motivation. A conflict or a frustration is not necessarily pathogenic. It becomes so only when it threatens or thwarts the basic needs, or partial needs that are closely related to the basic needs. The Role of Gratified Needs It has been pointed out above several times that our needs usually emerge only when more prepotent needs have been gratified. Thus, gratification has an important role in motivation theory. Apart from this, however, needs cease to play an active determining or organizing role as soon as they are gratified. What this means is that, e.g., a basically satisfied person no longer has the needs for esteem, love, safety, etc. The only sense in which he might be said to have them is in the almost metaphysical sense that a sated man has hunger, or a filled bottle has emptiness. If we are interested in what actually motivates us, and not in what has, will, or might motivate us, then a satisfied need is not a motivator. It must be considered for all practical purposes simply not to exist, to have disappeared. This point should be emphasized because it has been either overlooked or contradicted in every theory of motivation I know. Footnote. Note that acceptance of this theory necessitates basic revision of the Freudian theory. End of footnote. The perfectly healthy, normal, fortunate man has no sex needs or hunger needs, or needs for safety or for love or for prestige or self-esteem, except in stray moments of quickly passing threat. If we were to say otherwise, we should also have to aver that every man has all the pathological reflexes, e.g. Babinski, etc., because if his nervous system were damaged, these would appear. It is such considerations as these that suggest the bold postulation that a man who is thwarted in any of his basic needs may fairly be envisaged simply as a sick man. This is a fair parallel to our designation as sick of the man who lacks vitamins or minerals. Who is to say that a lack of love is less important than a lack of vitamins? Since we know the pathogenic effects of love starvation, who is to say that we are invoking value questions in an unscientific or illegitimate way any more than the physician does who diagnoses and treats pellagra or scurvy? If I were permitted this usage, I should then say simply that a healthy man is primarily motivated by his needs to develop and actualize his fullest potentialities and capacities. If a man has any other basic needs in any active, chronic sense, then he is simply an unhealthy man. He is as surely sick as if he had suddenly developed a strong salt hunger or calcium hunger. Footnote. If we were to use the word sick in this way, we should then also have to face squarely the relations of man to his society. One clear implication of our definition would be that, 1. Since a man is to be called sick who is basically thwarted, and 2. Since such basic thwarting is made possible ultimately only by forces outside the individual, then 3. Sickness in the individual must come ultimately from sickness in the society. The good or healthy society would then be defined as one that permitted man's highest purposes to emerge by satisfying all his prepotent basic needs. End of footnote. If this statement seems unusual or paradoxical, the reader may be assured that this is only one among many such paradoxes that will appear as we revise our ways of looking at man's deeper motivations. When we ask what man wants of life, we deal with his very essence. 4. Summary 1. There are at least five sets of goals which we may call basic needs. These are briefly physiological, safety, love, esteem, 
and self-actualization. In addition, we are motivated by the desire to achieve or maintain the various conditions upon which these basic satisfactions rest, and by certain more intellectual desires. 2. These basic goals are related to each other, being arranged in a hierarchy of prepotency. This means that the most prepotent goal will monopolize consciousness and will tend of itself to organize the recruitment of the various capacities of the organism. The less prepotent needs are minimized, even forgotten or denied. But when a need is fairly well satisfied, the next prepotent, higher need emerges, in turn to dominate the conscious life and to serve as the center of organization of behavior, since gratified needs are not active motivators. Thus man is a perpetually wanting animal. Ordinarily the satisfaction of these wants is not altogether mutually exclusive, but only tends to be. The average member of our society is more often partially satisfied and partially unsatisfied in all of his wants. The hierarchy principle is usually empirically observed in terms of increasing percentages of non-satisfaction as we go up the hierarchy. Reversals of the average order of the hierarchy are sometimes observed. Also, it has been observed that an individual may permanently lose the higher wants in the hierarchy under special conditions. There are not ordinarily multiple motivations for usual behavior, but in addition many determinants other than motives. 3. Any thwarting or possibility of thwarting of these basic human goals or danger to the defenses which protect them, or to the conditions upon which they rest, is considered to be a psychological threat. With a few exceptions, all psychopathology may be partially traced to such threats. A basically thwarted man may actually be defined as a sick man, if we wish. 4. It is such basic threats which bring about the general emergency reactions. 5. Certain other basic problems have not been dealt with because of limitations of space. Among these are a. The problem of values in any definitive motivation theory. b. The relation between appetites, desires, needs, and what is good for the organism. c. The etiology of the basic needs and their possible derivation in early childhood. d. Redefinition of motivational concepts, i.e. drive, desire, wish, need, goal. E. Implication of our theory for hedonistic theory. F. The nature of the uncompleted act, of success and failure, and of aspiration level. G. The role of association, habit, and conditioning. H. Relation to the theory of interpersonal relations. I. Implications for psychotherapy. J. Implication for theory of society. K the theory of selfishness. L. The relation between needs and cultural patterns. M. The relation between this theory and Alport's theory of functional autonomy. These, as well as certain other less important questions, must be considered as motivation theory attempts to become definitive. References 1. Alder A. Social Interest. London. Faber and Faber, 1938. 2. Cannon, W.B., Wisdom of the Body, New York, Norton, 1932. 3. Freud, A., The Ego and the Mechanisms of Defense, London, Hogarth, 1937. 4. Freud, S., New Introductory Lectures on Psychoanalysis, New York, Norton, 1933. 5. Fromm, E., Escape from Freedom. New York, Farrar and Reinhardt, 1941.
6. Goldstein, K. The Organism. New York, American Book Company, 1939. 7. Horny, K. The Neurotic Personality of Our Time. New York, Norton, 1937. 8. Cardiner, A. The Traumatic Neuroses of War. New York, Hober, 1941. 9. Levy, D. M. Primary Affect Hunger. American Journal of Psychiatry, 1937, 94, 643 through 652. 10. Maslow, A. H. Conflict, Frustration, and the Theory of Threat. Journal of Abnormal Social Psychology, 1943, 38, 81 through 86. 11. Maslow, A. H. Dominance, Personality, and Social Behavior in Women. Journal of Social Psychology, 1939, 10, 3 through 39. 12. Maslow, A. H. The Dynamics of Psychological Security, Insecurity. Character and Personality, 1942, 10, 331 through 344. 13. Maslow, A. H. A Preface to Motivation Theory. Psychosomatic Medicine, 1943, 5, 85 through 92. 14. Maslow, A. H. and Middleman, B. Principles of Abnormal Psychology. New York, Harper and Brothers, 1941. 15. Murray, H. A. et al. Explorations in Personality. New York, Oxford University Press, 1938. 16. Plant, J. Personality and the Cultural Pattern. New York, Commonwealth Fund, 1937. 17. Shirley, M. Children's Adjustments to a Strange Situation. Journal of Abnormal Social Psychology, 1942. 37. 201 through 217. 18. Tolman, E. C. Purposive Behavior in Animals and Men. New York, Century, 1932. 19. Wertheimer, M. Unpublished Lectures at the New School for Social Research. 20. Young, P. T. Motivation of Behavior. New York, John Wiley and Sons, 1936. 21. Young, P.T., The Experimental Analysis of Appetite, Psychology Bulletin, 1941, 38, 129 through 164. End of A Theory of Human Motivation, Sections 3 and 4. Recording by Matthew Rees, Davenport, Iowa.